it's uh, great to be with you. Thank you for, uh, for coming. I look forward to uh, taking us through uh, this next little section in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, I once heard the book of Acts described as God's story of what uh, happens next. So we are going to indeed find out what God has in store for us uh, next uh, this morning. So we're going to uh, carry on with the, the account of Saul uh, of rather Paul and Barnabas, this, this, uh, uh, this dynamic duo that are off on their missionary journey. They're off on this uh, a journey where actually now we find them that they're on the run from the Jews. You see, these are a, a people that have it uh, in their mind to, to stone them. Uh, and the reason that they are stoning them is this, that they are being persecuted because of their persistence in preaching the, method, uh, the message of salvation. So here we have two people immediately under pressure to do something that we are all under pressure to do on a daily basis, and that is to privatize our faith. To say that if we go out and say that this is the message that we have, this is the message of hope, there will instantly become under pressure. There will be people who will say that you cannot say that because of X, that you cannot say that because of Y. Well, what about this, and what about that, and what about all the others? Well, friends, I say this lovingly, and I say this carefully. Let God deal with that. We go out, and we share that message, in however that may be. But we go out, and we share that message. So the pair find themselves in this town of Lystra. It is a military city, as we'll look at uh, very shortly, a little bit later on. And as we're going to read from, um, from Acts 14, uh, we'll, we'll start at verse uh, 8. We'll start at verse 8. The verses will be on screen, but as ever, I encourage you to read uh, from, your, from your own Bible. So I'll give you a moment to, uh, to find them. Uh, Acts chapter 14, and we'll commence our reading uh, at verse 8. So Acts 14 reads uh, as such. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to may be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that they, what they had done, they lifted up their voice in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul the Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, who it was in the temple, was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands uh, to, to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out of the city, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of nature, like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and went on to Barnabas, on with Barnabas to Derve. So we, Paul and Silas, uh, Silas, Paul and Barnabas find themselves in this, this city of 
Lystra. It is a city very much under the influence of, of Rome, militarily, spiritually, socially, economically. There we are talking about a city under oppression from a world superpower. See, Luke informs us that these men were preaching the gospel. Sat in an audience is a man who is paralyzed. So this man sits and he takes in and he listens to what Paul is saying. But more than sitting and listening and taking in, Paul notices something about this man. There's something that stands him out. Now, let's be honest. When most of us see somebody in that situation, what Paul sees is not necessarily what we see. Our questions run through our mind. How did that person end up in that situation? What's that person's story? These aren't negative things, but they are just a completely different thing to what Paul is looking at. Because Acts tells us very clearly that Paul sees his faith. Paul notices something about this man, and that something is his faith. This man who could have easily blamed God for his condition. He could have become bitter. He could have become hated towards God. And with some people, and we could rightly say, with good cause, because of his condition and his oppression and the life that he was living at that time. Yet there is something that he is looking beyond. And he is looking beyond, and it's through the eye of faith with which he is looking. And it's that eye of faith that sees Paul, and it compels him now to do the opposite, from moaning and complaining and whinging, he realizes that Paul has a message for him. We've been there, I guess, at times. We've sat in a place like this or another church or wherever it is, and so the, the, the preacher is preaching, and it feels like there's nobody else in the room. And God is speaking directly to your heart. He's directly challenging you over where you are in that situation. Well, this is what I feel this man would have felt. That as he sat there, in arguably the same place that he would have sat perhaps for weeks and weeks and months before, where he would have lived, slept, ate with whatever he could get. For some reason now, that's all paled into insignificance. And all he can hear is what Paul is saying to him. All he can hear is the words of Paul. You see, he listens to Paul's preaching, and his faith is evident for Paul to see. So evident, in fact, that, that Paul acts and heals him. You see, the faith that, that Paul notices is the faith to make him well, so we read in our passage. Now, it's interesting because faith is one of these talked-about subjects. I don't know how many of you have seen the, the debate between John Lennox and uh, Richard Dawkins, where the two are going to and fro about what faith is and what evidence is and everything else. To which Richard Dawkins says, well, you only have to, to, to use the word faith when there is no evidence in this disparaging context. And Lennox comes back with an absolute perler and says to him, Richard, I suppose you have faith in your wife. Is there any evidence of that? So faith is not without evidence. In fact, Lennox went on to say in his book, God's Undertaker, faith is a response to evidence and not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. Faith is something of which is evidence-based. Some of it is subjective, of which our own understanding, some of it comes from science, and some of it comes from the things that we experience. But faith is very much an evidence-based thing. And that's what this man had. 
The evidence that he was gathering was from the message that Paul was giving him. You see, this man's evidence was the subject of Paul's message. His faith then, because we know already that Paul is preaching salvation, we already know this because he's thrown hand grenades and he's upset the Jews and they want to stone him. And so therefore we know that he's preaching the correct message because he is preaching the message of salvation. What is he preaching? Very simply, friends, Paul is preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That is Paul's message. That is our message. And the people that we meet is that that's the message that we give them. You see, the faith that this man has also had a result. And the result of it was this, that Paul could say to him, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaps to his feet. I couldn't find a picture of leaping, but that will do. And Paul says to him, stand up on your feet. Now look, we could go into the who, what, whys and wherefores of what that meant for a paralyzed man and the effects it had on his body, and we could drill down into it scientifically. But look, let's take it as it is. This is a miracle. Bonafide. No ifs, no buts, no second guessing. It is a miracle. It will not become no surprise to you that in the ancient world, paralyzed people did not just get up and walk about. There was a miracle. Now, I want to pause to talk about miracles here for just a few moments. I want to do that for this reason. I firmly believe that miracles still happen today. I firmly believe it. With everything I read in Scripture, there is no reason, if we have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, why the miracles that happened then are not going to happen now in some context or another. I firmly believe that miracles happen today. God does something that seems beyond science or nature, or at least what we know of science and nature. God intervenes in time and space in a way that manipulates everything that we know and understand for his glory. However, I want to caveat about this by, by that by saying this. While I firmly believe in miracles, I am equally firm in my belief that we should not get caught up by the miracle. There will be those who will get so uh, obsessed by that miracle that they will overlook the God that did that miracle. The miracle is there to point people to God. The miracle in the Bible was there to point people to Jesus. That's why in the vast majority of our miracles, there is very little made of it. It might be one or two sentences. And then it's back to the next bit that Jesus is doing or what God is doing. Let's not get hung up on the miracles. You see, the New Testament is full of people who would only believe in Jesus if he performed a sign for them. And John chapter 6, verse 29 and 30 says this, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? For a bonus point, you'll know when that conversation happened. Jesus has just walked on water. And yet people still ask for a sign. There was another classic debate over this, of which somebody said, well, you being a scientist, again, talking about John Lennox, says that you being a scientist believe that Jesus walked on water. Lennox's retort, 
well, if you invented water, walking on it is not that difficult, is it? <laughs> and while we laugh, the point is still there. The fact of the matter is this. The miracle is there to point us to the one who does the miracle. Let's not get hung up on who or what the miracle was. The miraculous is there to point us to Jesus. It's not about the event. It's about the person behind the event. The person of Jesus, for whom the glory of that miracle should be given. But look, friends, don't misunderstand me. I have no intention of playing down the miracles. Rather, I simply believe that those miracles are there to point us to the one who is worthy to be worshipped. The one who is there who completed that miracle. You see, there are times when we get that the wrong way round just like the people of Lystra did, as we'll find out as we go forward. Because now, as we see in verse 11, this is where it all starts to go wrong. You see, the, the people unsurprisingly noticed the miracle. Like I said, paralyzed people in the ancient world, they didn't just get up and walk about. And the crowd erupt with praise and, uh, for, for Paul and for Barnabas. And all the miracles we read in Scripture, none of them has a reaction quite like this one to the people that witness it. The crowd get themselves whipped up into a frenzy. But their energy is misguided. So I, I said that you might have seen at the bottom of this uh, of our slide, who is worthy to be worshipped? Well, I've written that title for this particular moment. You see, the people are witness to a blessing. And they focus their worship in the wrong place. We'll go on to see that a little bit later. But I would suggest that this is an everyday occurrence, even in our modern world. People that live sometimes in the benefit of God's blessing or provision, and they put it down to luck, coincidence, chance, or just simply a happy accident, and they leave it there. I guess the question and the challenge for us is, as, as God's people, do we do the same? Do we receive the benefit of God's provision? Do we see the benefit of God's blessing? Do we live in the light of what he has done for us? And saying thank you then is eighth or ninth on the list of priorities. We've been talking about the vaccine this morning. At my age, I'm on page 976, I expect. And yet, is that the same as thank you when God does something? It's thank you on page 976. You see, because this is what happens in this particular account. That when the people saw what they had done, they lifted up their voices and they said, the gods of men have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, there was an account that happened a long time ago in this same place. And if you have a study Bible, it will mention it in verse 11. It will say about there was an account whereby two men supposedly turned up and they were uh, sent in the spirit of Zeus. And, and this is where the people all got confused. And that's arguably one of the reasons why they then act in the way they do. Whereas I really believe they acted in the way they did because they completely misunderstood what had happened. You see, so the question is, as us, as God's people... When God intervenes, his thank you on the later pages of our things to do. 
You see, Jesus uses this story to heal, uh, to, 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 to make that account. He says this, didn't I heal ten men? Didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go, for your faith has healed you. So we have that account of ten men who are healed from leprosy. Ten men who have been given, as we've considered from this very platform, their own life back. And nine of them disappear. They're gone and they vanish like a leaf in the wind. Never to be seen again. And yet this man comes back and he gives thanks to God. Let us be a people who come back and give thanks to God for what he has done for us. So the second thing I want you to take away from this morning is this. As we return thanks to God, let us always return thanks to God for what he has done for us. Let us be a people who look beyond the miracle and to the one who has done the miracle. Let us be a people who always return thanks to God. And let's not get this next bit wrong. So this is a true story. But the, as ever with these true stories, the names of the, uh, in the story have been changed, this time to protect the innocent of the guilty. Picture the scene. You're the parent of a seven-year-old child called Ben. One morning at breakfast, Ben looks at you and says, I don't want to go to school. And in your parental wisdom, you decide that Ben has a cold that is going to disappear at nine o'clock after the school bell is rung. And then you realize, okay, Ben, what's wrong? Ben says, my teacher is going to burn me. So you ask Ben to repeat what he says. And he says again that the teacher is going to burn him. So Ben goes to school. You convince him it will be okay. I'll speak to the head teacher. We'll find out what's going on. And full of parental rage, you march to the head teacher's office to report what Ben has said, and you demand that is it investigated. So the head teacher says, okay, I'll investigate, I'll find out, and off you go. The end of the day comes, and you go back to pick up little Ben from school. And that parental rage that has been subdued all day comes racing to the surface, and you want to find out what this head teacher has found out about why this teacher is going to burn Ben. So the head teacher announces your arrival in the class. You're met by a teacher who has a smirk on their face. And they explain the whole saga. Yesterday, the whole class were doing some writing. And Ben was doing really, really, really well. Wanting to be encouraging to Ben, the teacher made the fatal mistake. Ben, you're on fire. But what's happened to Ben? It's quite simple, isn't it? He's misunderstood. He's misunderstood what has happened, what the teacher means. We do that all the time. We misunderstand something, sometimes with hilarious or embarrassing consequences. You see, Paul and Barnabas are about to have a misunderstanding. 
The crowd are celebrating and shouting, which for them would have been fair enough. What the two men don't realise is they are about to be in the middle of what is soon to become a potentially major idolatrous event. The local people thought the Roman god Zeus and Hermes had come amongst them because of what Paul and Barnabas had done. Yet they completely missed the mark. This wasn't about the miracle, it was about pointing people to God. The priests of Zeus had plans to sacrifice animals to them for this event. Paul and Barnabas, you can imagine them gesticulating, shouting, will do whatever they can to stop this idol worship from happening. This men will do whatever it takes to stop idol worship. They are protecting the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So these missionaries then they express their horror at the blasphemous behavior and they try even harder to end the entire thing. Let's not get into that realms where we misunderstand what is happening. We have considered that we always focus on the God behind the miracle. And it is a God who is worthy to be worshipped. And as we move into verse 15 to 18, we are taught the way to combat blasphemy. You see, Paul and Barnabas make a stand against blasphemy by preaching and pointing the people to the God who really is. Verse 15 says this. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring good news that you should turn from these vain, vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You can almost picture the scene as Paul is standing there. Paul is pointing to the mountains, to the sky. Anything he could to get these men uh, to see and understand to engender them to understand exactly what God is, to, what Paul is talking about. He spoke of God as the creator of heaven and earth. He spoke of God as being living and active. You see, one of the lessons for us to learn, perhaps as we evangelize, is this: is we didn't, Paul didn't preach Scripture at them. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the Bible is irrelevant when it comes to to evangelism. I'm not saying that for one moment. Don't throw things at me. But the point of the matter is this, is that Paul reaches these people exactly where they are. He uses the things around them to explain and to help them understand what he is talking about. You see, Paul draws upon God's provision for the world to try and curtail their idol worship. He talks of God being provider in verse 17, bringing rain and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. You see, what Paul does as he shares this good news with people is that he connects with them where they are. You see, Paul tries to connect with people who wanted somebody to worship, who wanted to celebrate what they have seen, a people who want to recognize that their gods had worked in front of them. They needed what so many people need today, somebody to put their faith and their trust in. Paul and Barnabas were doing just that, pointing them to a God they can put their faith and their trust in. That's our job for the world around us. Our papers, and when we see it in the news, are full of people who say that 
The government don't have a plan. They don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows how to get out of this. Why are cases still rising? And it goes on and on and on and on. Okay, if it didn't, we wouldn't sell any newspapers, but that's besides the point. It goes on and on and on. People are searching for answers. They are searching for something to put their faith in. Friends, if you are holding your Bible, you are holding the words of the person for whom they can put their faith and trust in. That's our role. That's our responsibility. Our challenge is to point the people to the God behind the miracles, to point the people to the God who is worthy to be worshipped, to point people to the God for whom they are looking for, for someone to put their faith and their trust in. So finally then we come to the people who have been in the background of this event all along. These people looking on when they should have been speaking out. People plotting and scheming to stone Paul since Iconium. And now is their chance. They somehow manage to get up and pop up these Jews and they change the minds of the people. The crowd wanted to worship him as a god, a messenger of one of their gods. And that same crowd had now turned their back on him and wanted him executed. Does that resonate with people? I hope this picture resonates with you around that. Here were a people who recognized something special about Paul. And then, very short sentences later, they wanted him executed. Here were people who worshipped Christ as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. It wouldn't be too hard to imagine that some of those very same people would have been there when those people said, away with him. We will not have this to rule over us. The Jews have turned again on one of their own, and they try to execute him. What should we say about the Jews? What should we say about them in this? Well, there are some times when you have to look for what other people have said, and I did just that. David Gooding said this, sometimes religious people would prefer others to stand in their paganism, idolatry, and sin and worldliness rather than get saved. So antagonistic to salvation religion can be. My final challenge to us this morning is this. Are we guilty of that? Are we as a church guilty of that? Are we as individuals, as friends, as families, are we guilty of that? Look what happened to Paul. The Jews won. They took him out and they stoned him, but God wasn't finished with him yet because God saved him from that moment. But I leave you with that challenge. Sometimes religious people would prefer others to stay in their paganism, idolatry, sin, and worldliness rather than get saved. So antagonistic to salvation, religion can be. Friends, our challenge is this. If we don't share the message that God has given us to share with our family, with our friends, with the people around about us, then we, in that regard, we are already guilty. Sometimes God's messages aren't always happy and comfortable. They don't always leave you going away with joy. But you don't read that in Scripture. It's there as a challenge, and it's a challenge that I leave us with this morning. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this uh, incredible passage that you've given us this morning. Father, there are times when you challenge us and you prick our consciences to act on your behalf. Father, help us to be a people who do just that. That we look and give thanks to the God behind the miracle. That we look and we give thanks to the God and we don't misunderstand him. And that ultimately we do as we are asked and we point people to a God whom they can have their faith and their trust in. Father, save us from being religious people who would prefer others to stay in paganism, idolatry, sin and worldliness rather than get saved. Father, help us to be a people. Father, help us to be a people who go out and share your message and see souls saved and one for Christ because of what you have done for them. And we will have the privilege of knowing that we have served our God faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.